Okay, I think you know we're going to go to the book of Revelation. And I want to do a couple of things as we get started here this morning. Number one is, we are going to do this in 22 weeks, but today doesn't start the clock. All right? This is, you can see the bulletin, it says introduction, right? That doesn't mean the clock has started, um, but anytime I need an interlude, I will tell you. Uh, but we are going to do one chapter each week, all right? And I know that's going to come right up on Easter time, and so there's going to be a couple of weeks we're going to say, well, we're going to do this or that, but, but we will do this all in 22 weeks. So what I'm going to ask you to do with your new coffee cups is fill it up with something you might like, like coffee, all right, and enjoy reading Revelation chapter 1 this week. Sometime this week, just sit down and take the time to read through the chapter, all right? And then when we come to it next week, we'll talk about chapter one. Then the following week, go after chapter number two. You got the idea? It's a continuous homework assignment for you to prepare you for the week ahead is to read the chapter ahead. So I'm going to ask you to do that. And since you have coffee mugs to do it with, you're all set. Okay. So that's, that's what you could expect in this, and I really can't wait to hear the hymns that go with chapter 17 of this book. It's, I mean, it's just all horrible stuff, and uh, maybe there's some wonderful hymns to match that. I don't know. But I do ask you to join me in chapter 1 this morning. Again, introduction, but we're going into chapter number 1. Did I turn all that on? I did. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Just the joy of knowing you, the fact that you are active in our lives. We're not, we're not here to worship a stone or a rock or a tree or a piece of wood or even something more fancy that's made out of gold or metal of any kind. But we have the true living God, and he loves us. And he's recorded for us his word that we might know, that we might know you and your Son, whom you have sent. We are blessed people. That was mentioned already once this morning, and we repeat it now. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, turning your attention to us, doing all this work in us, preparing a future for us. Now we give our time to you, our attention to your throne, to your word, to your person. And I pray, Lord, that you might... uh, Use this next time of study that we have before us powerfully in our lives. We do, we do come to you, Lord, to know you better. And pray that you are blessed that that desire of ours today. Thank you, Lord, again for giving to us your magnificent word. The adventure it is to read through it and learn of it. I pray that you might encourage our hearts in the whole process. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you of something some of you will remember. Some of you, um, it's kind of funny to say, weren't even born yet. Edgar C. Wisenot. Heard that name before? Maybe I said it wrong. Wisenot? Wisenot. He was a NASA engineer. He was a Bible student who predicted the rapture would occur in 1988. He wrote a book. It was called something to the effect of 88 reasons why the Lord was going to return in 1988. He was so excited about his message, 
he had 300,000 copies sent to pastors all across America. I did get one. 4.5 million copies were sold in the bookstores and everywhere else. This is what he said. Listen to the quote. Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. Woo! And I say that to every preacher in town, he says. And if there were a king in this country and I could gamble my life, I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 88. That was the Jewish New Year. It didn't happen. It was suggested that he should write a book the next year, in 89, and add one more reason to the 88 reasons, and that was that the Lord didn't come last year. Why he should come in 89. That was suggested in a lot of circles, I heard. But uh, the fact is, he did write a book in 1989, and one in 1993, and one in 1994, and then he stopped. And probably because by then people weren't listening anymore. That would make sense, right? That's one of the problems with predicting like that. And to say that kind of a statement, too, was not wise. But when we go about predicting things, and they do not happen as we think they should, it not only does discredit to us and our own word, but I think it does discredit to God and His word. Because the times will come, Peter warns us of this, the times will come where people will mock the idea of the coming of Christ. They will mock it and say, where's the promise of His coming? Oh, it's all the same. It's always the same. It's been that way forever, and it will stay that way. And out of their ignorance and their stubbornness and their hard hearts, the Lord says, I will come. Just as sure as I promised, I will come. Our series we have before you is that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. I'm not setting a date. And I won't do that this whole year in our study. I will not do that ever. But I will stake my life on the fact that Jesus is coming. I know that for sure. His word says so. His word says so. And we're going to enjoy that as we go. And notice the top of your bulletin so that you know for the whole year what is written at the top of the bulletin. Uh, I'm just going to keep that before you. A promise that Jesus has made. And Jesus did make this promise. John chapter 14. You can keep your finger or bookmark here, your bulletin, whatever. Uh, But in John chapter 14, a very familiar passage to all of us. I, I think we tend to use it a lot when we are at a graveside because these are comforting words for us. It reminds us again what Jesus is doing in the life of his own. And in John 14, we said, Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is speaking. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now that's quite, that's quite a statement if you stop and look at it. Who did he just equate himself to? God, because he is. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. So you might have the word mansions there. To to tell the truth, in the the Greek word for that, it's more more like a holiday inn or something like that. You say, well, what's that? It's meant to be a temporary place. It's an abiding place, a staying place. They used it for those who were traveling, a place to go, a 
Hotel 6 or whatever. And that's not to diminish what he's saying here. But the fact is what he's preparing for us is temporary because someday he's building a new heaven. And I can't even imagine how fabulous that will be if this little place is described to us in Scripture at times and we say, wow, just imagine what the new place would be. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. So if you're expecting a mansion in Hollywood or something, it might not look quite like that. It might be even better. All right? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if, I, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's his promise. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's, that's very assuring to us. Those are excellent words. But the promise is simple. Jesus says, I am coming. I am coming. Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter number 1, for a minute. I'm going to put my bookmark here, or else I'm going to lose all my pages. Acts, chapter number 1. Go to verse number 11. Jesus is with his disciples after his resurrection. He spent many days with them, and then he came to the moment where he is ascending up into heaven. And he does. And the disciples are standing there watching him go. It's got to be amazing to see. And as they are standing there looking up into the heavens, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, they also, these, these angels suddenly appeared. All right? Let's back up just a little bit. I'm going to start with verse 9. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently in the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, here it is, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, whom you have, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come. In just the same way that you have watched him go into heaven. He's coming. And they saw him physically, visibly ascend. He will physically, visibly descend. That's the promise. He will come. He will come. Now, the apostles were not silent about that point. Often in their epistles, they bring it up over. And over and over again. Because they expected that. I'm not going to give you all the epistles here this morning, but I will take you Thessalonians for a minute. First Thessalonians. And I'm just going to show you something that Paul did concerning the coming of Christ. You can find First Thessalonians, I hope. Where is it? There it is. After Colossians, before Timothy. You're right in there. Watch this. Paul is so excited about the coming of Christ, he has to bring it up in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians. As he comes to the end of a chapter, and he didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he wrote a letter. But when he came to the end of a paragraph, a point that he was making and ready to move to the next theme, he always mentions the coming of Christ. Watch this. It's kind of interesting. But in chapter number 1, verse number 9... For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He's describing the Thessalonians, and He says, I know who you guys are, and I know what you're doing. You're waiting, aren't you? You're waiting for Him to come. Look at chapter number 2, verse 19. For who is our hope and our joy and our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? He's talking to the Thessalonians. In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. He's looking forward to it. He knows he's coming. says, I can't wait for that day. Chapter 3, verse 13. That he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter number 4. You know this passage. I'll start with verse 13 and read about five or six verses here in a row. I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as those as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus rose or died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He's coming. He brings it up. Chapter 5, he couldn't stop. He had to say it again. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He loves the theme. He's coming. He's coming. He keeps bringing it up. He's coming. To the believer, this is the best news on this side of Calvary. He's coming. We believers count on His promise. He has made it, so we have no reason to doubt it. We count on it. That's how we believe it. We believe it because it is our hope, right? Hope is, the Greek word means confident expectation. Not, well, I hope so. (laughs) But this is confidence that we have, that he has given us his promise. And Titus, when Paul's writing to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, he's looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe it because this is our comfort. As we've already seen a couple of times. John 14 and even at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. That's our comfort. I doubt that anybody among us in this room, I'd be surprised if if we haven't lost a loved one. And especially one who knows the Lord. And isn't it comforting to know that they are with the Lord and they will come again with Him and we shall see them and meet them in the clouds. What a glorious thing that is. 
What a glorious comfort and hope that is. That's why he says, you don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. We can grieve. We can cry. We can miss. We know the pains of all that. And yet all the while we have hope. And hope never disappoints, folks. It does not. Because our hope is on Christ. It's on Christ. So don't be uninformed, as he tells our Thessalonian writers, about those who are asleep. So you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe. Matter of fact, you know I'm going to change that word. That Greek word is not if. It's since. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we do. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Let me say it this way. The promise of his coming and the promise of believers seeing each other again and all that is wrapped up with the fact Jesus died and rose again. And if he doesn't come, then the rest isn't true. You see? That's how sure the promise is. It's based on that simple and yet profound truth. Jesus died and rose again. And if you ever want to attach something that's absolutely true in Scripture with anything, attach it to that, and that convinces the heart. Because we know he died and rose again. So we know he will keep his promise. That's how he links it. I said, what an amazing comfort that brings to us in our hearts. And that's why we can comfort one another with these words. Because Paul doesn't stop. He just does it throughout his books. Peter does it. Others do it as well. I, I just set before you these things because I think perhaps the most popular conference that I've seen in my lifetime is those ones on end times. Just advertise you're having an end times conference. And, and for years, people have just flocked to those. But I will also say that even though they're the most popular things, and the books that went with them are very popular, some of them have been very misleading. Some of those have confused a lot of people. And it was because they weren't accurately presented. They, they, they weren't set before uh, the church from God's Word. They were mostly built on speculation and some pretty wild imagination. I'll tell you that too. There are some who are very gifted at putting imagination into the whole picture. I have been taught, and maybe you have been taught, many have been taught, that the book of Revelation cannot be understood. I, I disagree with that, by the way. I disagree with that with all my heart. In chapter 1, let's go right to it. In chapter number 1 of the book of Revelation. The top of my Bible. If you could see the page, I could turn it around. There it is. All right. At the very top of my Bible, where the caption reads, The Revelation to John. That's what it says. I have a comment written at the very top to remind me of something. It says, to reveal something means that it's no longer a mystery. To reveal something means that it is no longer a mystery. This is called a revelation. So, folks, it's no longer a mystery. It's been recorded. They make big deals out of such words as, Apocalypse. You might even have that right on your page somewhere. The Apocalypse of John. Some people like that word. Movie writers like that word. 
because they think it speaks of some concept of disaster and end of the world kind of stuff and all these other things. But the Greek word for apocalypse, which actually is that word that we translate as revelation, it's actually right there in verse number one. It's the very first word of the whole book in the Greek is apocalypsis. He said, ooh, what's that? Well, it's a real simple term. It means to take the lid off the pan. That's all it is, to take the lid off the pan. Sometimes when you're cooking, and my kids have always done this, and they wanted to know, what am I cooking? There's a lid on it. Guess what they do? Walk up to the stove, lift it up, see what it is, if they want to eat it or not. You know? I hate it when they do that to my rice. <laughs> it just ruins it when they pop it up and all the steam's gone. But this is all it is. The lid's been taken off so you can see it. That's the word. That's the Greek word right before you. I could go, I could bore you to death with the definition of it all the way through, but that's a simple way to say it. It's to take the lid off. What is revealed? Verse number one. We saw it up here on the screen, and now look at it in your text. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not... It's not primarily a revelation of the future. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Does it pertain to the future? Yes. But it's about Him. We sometimes go to all the lengths to walk through it and talk through it and everything else. And if we leave Him out of it, we've lost the whole point of the book. It's about Him. That's why I'm putting that before you. The Lord is coming because that is what the book is telling us. In all these other chapters, we're going to keep coming to the main point. It's about Jesus Christ and He is coming. Sometimes people call it the book of Revelations. They put the S on the end of it. And yes, there are a lot of things revealed in this book, but it is primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see. Now, go down to verse 7, and I'll set the theme for us that we will follow all the way through. Verse number 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see, see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. Many years ago, I did what I called a book and Bible study. You want to try something cool. It's really kind of fun. You go to any of the epistles in the New Testament. You start with chapter 1, read about five or six verses, and then go to the last chapter of the same book and read about the last five or six verses. And it is fascinating how many times those two work so beautifully together interesting study and i did that through all the epistles and not all of them lined up as precisely as i would have thought maybe it would but how many times it did show up that way where what was said at the start was the same thing said at the end and many times it had to do with our peace and our joy and these things that we had which i thought well, that's really neat that's really amazing to me so i said what would revelation bookends look like you just saw verse number seven can you imagine what the end of this book talks about? Wild guess. 
Go back to chapter 22. Start in verse 16. I'm going to go 16 through 20 here. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears says, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There's your bookends. One of them, Jesus says, I'm coming. The other end, it's the response. Oh, please hurry. Come. Come. Just like you promised, come. And packed between those are many wonderful, incredible chapters. And we're going to get to look at his plan and how his coming is going to be brought to us. What All the stages and pieces and parts that go into it. Revelation is full of those kind of things. But understand what it's about. It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ and He is coming. That's the promise. That's the promise. As we stand here today in the year 2020, believe it or not, that's a new number for us, isn't it? 2020. I look at the landscape of eschatology, of, of the study of end times, there's a lot of opinions out there, folks. A lot of opinions of what it ought to look like. I do believe that if one follows a literal hermeneutic and stays consistent to it, that's important, that the future picture is pretty clear. It's supported by the Bible. That's what it should be anyway. There are things that I do speculate about and things that you speculate about and things that people speculate about because we don't know. We've never been there. But there are some things that are absolutely undeniable and not easily confused unless you want them confused because God wrote pretty clearly, by the way. He's not the author of confusion. And he records it in his word and sometimes we approach it absolutely wrong and, and we get confused about these things. But I believe, from what I see, and what we declare here in our church, that there are three more main events on this earth. First, the rapture of the church. I believe in the rapture of the church. I I believe that uh, He is coming, and He can come today. I believe that with all my heart. He doesn't need to warn us about that. There's nothing to set the table for that. I think there's enough evidence in our world today to suggest that other things are going to take place soon. And all those other things follow the rapture. So I believe it's going to happen. And I expect it. A lot of people have for many years, haven't they? They've looked forward to the rapture. 
And let me put it this way. As a believer, you will not miss the rapture. That's guaranteed. Whether you're alive or you're not, you will not miss the rapture. Because that's what Thessalonians teaches. You will be there. So there's no way you're going to miss the boat on that one, folks. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. If you want to hear, I'm not going to map all that out. I, I, I've taught before on the rapture of the church. Our website, go back eight years and you'll find it there. We've spent a whole year and a half on 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's all there. And then I put it in the book. And if you like books, some of you have that too. And you could read it in the book, Heaven and the Believer. But that I've mapped out before. I believe in the rapture and that's an event we're going to see. Second thing I believe is that this world will see a seven-year tribulation. Scripture gives it that number. God specifically mentions that, and he's clear in it every single time he mentions it. We believers will not participate in it. Praise the Lord for that. I actually heard somebody complain once that they thought that we were just wanting to get away from the tribulation. That's why we taught the rapture. I said, well, yeah, I do want to get away from the tribulation. I don't want that thing. But Scripture does not have the believer in the, in the tribulation period. I could show you all that too. But all you need is First Thessalonians chapter 5. And it goes and spells it out. That's for the other guy, folks. That's not for you. That's what he says. Go through it and see the difference between those who are asleep and those who are not. And, and he talks about the fact that believers are not a part of the tribulation period. We will not participate in it. But it will happen. And it will happen after the rapture of the church. The third thing that I know will happen is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Jesus Christ will come, literally, physically, visibly, to this earth. He will literally, physically, visibly rule this world. We call it the millennial period. It will be for a thousand years. Somebody says, oh, how do you know that thousand years? It never says that in the Bible. Oh, yes, it does. Revelation, chapter 20, it says it six times. How many more times do you need? It says it. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. It just keeps getting stated that way. Why? Because it's a thousand years. And it's going to happen. And he will reign. And if you don't think revelation is, is enough for you, go through most of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And they say it too. They don't put the number on it. But they say he's coming. Literally, sit there. He will rule this world. I love that. This world will see that too. It will see a rapture, and it will wonder what happened. It will go through a tribulation, seven years, yes. It will see the return of Christ, and it will see the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. This world will see all those things. That is coming. What happens after that? There will be the destruction of this earth and of heaven, a great white throne judgment for unbelievers, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, and a lot of that is described in this book we have in front of us. I'm just giving you the structure so that you know as I go through it, you'll say, oh, that's what he meant. It's going to be revealed to us as we go through this. Why? Why did he have this book written? Is it because he knew we were so curious that we had to have this information? Yeah, he probably did. He knows that we're curious. That's why people flock to these conferences. We had it up in, in Warsaw, Indiana. Warsaw, Indiana has got a, a city inside of it. It's like a donut. And the, the inside is called Winona Lake. 
Winona Lake has a college and seminary inside of it called Grace Theological Seminary. And for many, 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 many years, during the 1900s especially, and still to this day, they have a prophecy conference every summer put on by the Friends of Israel. They come in, they take over the town for a whole week or so. They give a prophecy conference on things that are going to come. And do you know what? The people still flock to it. They've been doing that for 70-some years, I think. But they still go to that conference. A lot of them have gray hair. Some of them have sat through every single conference since it started, maybe. But I think it's interesting. There is a curiosity that our generation has still yet to have it completely satisfied. We want to know. God has given us information that we might know. He knows the curiosity that comes with trying to understand what we don't see. He knows that. But he also understands that we need to know. We need to know. And and the Lord did not disappoint us with information. This book is one of them. I like to call the prophecies of the book of Revelation something simple. History yet to happen. Right? Some call it history. And stop right there. It's not history. It's history yet to happen. Because God is the only one I know who can look into the future and speak in the past tense. And he does. He says, this is what it's going to be. He's not guessing. He knows. He knows. He's planned it, folks, because he's sovereign. I've said that a lot. But I'm going to trying to establish that in our hearts. When he writes about what is to come, you can write it down as history yet to happen. Put it in a book. Well, he did. But put it in a book. It's a history book yet to happen, and it will be fulfilled just as he said. Everything is. So we're curious, and we want to know, and God has told us why he's given to us these plans for the future. And it's more than just curiosity. And it's more than just knowledge. This is probably the main point of it all. Go back to Titus with me again, chapter 2. I read to you about the blessed hope that we have. And I want to show you what's around that section of Scripture. Titus chapter 2, go to verse 11 with me. And this is why we have prophecy. You ready? This is important. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. These things ought to change our life. Not to simply fill our heads. Not to just fill our lives. 
but to set before us what we do while we wait. The fact is, He is coming. He is coming. That's you see in the middle of the passage. The fact is also, this world is wicked. I don't know if you know that. It's pretty obvious to me. The world is very wicked. So what are we to do? Deny ungodliness, He said. Or worldly desires. That means don't let them master you. Reject them. Refuse them. Instead, live sensibly. Live righteously. Live godly in the present age. While you are looking for Jesus to appear. Because He redeemed us to purify us as His people. To make us zealous for good deeds. That's what was recorded around the promise Jesus is coming. And if you think, well, Paul's alone in that mentality, try 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 3. That's right before the book of Revelation. If you kept your bookmark, just back up a couple of pages. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 2 and 3. I've always loved verse number 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. For we shall see Him just as He is. I love those words, don't you? With Him, see Him, like Him. Oh, that's exciting. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope, do you? Fixed on him, does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. You will soon see Jesus. How close are you to be like him? I set this theme before you because that is what we're studying in this book. We are not studying end times. We're studying Jesus Christ. Because when this book has run its course, and all these things are fulfilled, time is yet still before us. And we're going to be with Him. And then we're going to say, now it's history. But being with Jesus will never change. Let's set our focus on Him and not on events. Because events bring curiosity. Events fill the head. But it's Jesus that fills the heart. Changes the life. He's the one you're going to see. He's the one you're going to be with. He's the one you're going to be like. So let's put Him in the forefront. It's about Him. It's about Him. I see this theme all the time when I'm reading here. The point of our study in this passage is going to be the Lord is coming. Chapter 1, next week, we're going to find a main verse. We're going to understand all the things that are around it. We're going to read about it. But our eyes will be on the coming of Jesus. That's who we're going to be looking for. And while we're doing it, we're going to be mindful of our lives down here. Because He is at work making us to be like Him. This book will help a lot. It will help a lot. So, I hope your desire is to please Him.
I hope that's your heart's desire, to please Him, to be like Him. That's what prophecy is for, to make us zealous for good deeds, to purify ourselves. Anyway, you know the application every week now, don't you? I'm going to keep bringing it up, because that's what it's all about. You ready for it? Let's start next week. What do you say? If the rapture occurs, that's okay. We'll do it up there. But we'll have better insight, I'm sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for giving us your word. For not leaving us in the dark about the things that are yet to come, but to tell us of the structure of it, the things to expect and the things to know. But Lord, thank you for making the main point of it all. It's about Jesus Christ. And it's about our understanding of him that we might be in that process right now, consciously engaged in becoming like him. And I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. I thank you for your constant work in our hearts. And may this just prompt it all the more as we go through our study together. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.